Hi, this is LA Drinks, the podcast that gets beneath the surface of the alcohol beverage industry in Los Angeles. We'll be talking to leading figures in the industry to learn what Los Angeles drinks and why. We'll try to break the business down into its parts, touching on manufacturing and production, marketing and sales, through to hospitality. We'll try to understand trends. Are they driven by marketing, or do they evolve through social forces, or both? Our guests are chosen for their expertise in their respective fields, but we'll always ask them for their take on the landscape as a whole. As we learn about the specific jobs within the wine and spirits business, we will unearth a bounty of human capital that determines the evolving and expanding drinks choices that we have in Los Angeles. This podcast is dedicated to its guests and the contribution they provide to drinking Los Angeles, but also to the city itself, a place of a thousand patios, and also many a dark wood-paneled haunt. The whole world is said to meet in L.A., and there's a seat reserved for all. Today I'm with Jared and Fry, who is a U.S. brand ambassador for Ruinart Champagne. Jaredin has moved through many roles in the food and beverage industry, from floor som to marketing positions in the Napa Valley wine trade, as well as with Moet Champagne. Her specialty now is in educating her teams across the U.S. about Ruinart, as well as interfacing with customers, restaurant staff, specialists, and influencers. She coordinates Ruinart's participation in events such as the International Freeze Art Fair, which is launching in Los Angeles this week. As a result of her activity in this capacity, she arrived for our talk as a delivery truck driver was attempting to drop two pallets of wine at her residence. Graciously, she persuaded him to take lunch, after which she would meet him to complete the delivery. It is with such aplomb that she goes about her work preaching the gospel of champagne. In our talk, we were able to cover a profile of Jaredin's work, and also to place Ruinart and champagne in general where it belongs in the Los Angeles market. I'm particularly interested in the concept of promoting, quote, lifestyle, end quote, which Ruinart as a luxury brand is focused on. We had not quite enough time to fully plumb this subject, but I was grateful for what time we did have. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you, Jaredin, for being here. Absolutely. It's really, uh, I know that it's, um, you know, today is not the ideal I know. day. Can we, uh, let's do some bio, because it's always really interesting to hear people who are in F&B, uh, what their childhood or their, you know, formative years were like and how it sometimes relates to where they ended up uh, professionally. Yes, I certainly would not have thought that um, I would end up here. <laughs> okay. It was definitely um, evolved over time. However, it's funny because my grandfather always says to me, well, naturally, you would end up in this this industry because your great-grandfather made bootleg wine and whiskey actually for Al Capone's um, friends because he had a speakeasy, so they would come over to the speakeasy and drink the whiskey and the wine. So my grandfather said, naturally, it would make sense that you'd be in this industry. I always find that kind of humorous. <laughs> Is that, was that in Chicago? Yeah, uh-huh. in Chicago. So, but you're from Colorado. Oh, so I was born in Indiana, okay. and then we moved to Colorado growing up, and, and I was always involved in the arts and theater and um, had a real deep interest in, in culture. And so I majored in sociology, and I finished my 
degree at Loyola Marymount when I was working at Spago in Beverly Hills in the early 2000s. And at that time, Michael Bonacorsi, Master Sommelier, he was our, he was really the person who inspired me initially into wine. He would be delivering a a lecture or presentation on Barolo, and he would have maps and talk about Burgundy. So that's where I really started learning about wine was at Spago and some other fantastic sommeliers and wine directors, Kevin O'Connor and Bonnie Graves that worked there as well. So they were the first to really inspire and influence that there was something beyond where I didn't know what I wanted to do with my sociology degree. So I took a real liking to wine and then started to get involved in all sorts of classes through International Sommelier Guild and WSET Diploma, but just expanding my knowledge uh, in wine and then working in wine. And I worked at a number of places throughout Los Angeles and Hollywood as a floor som and wine director before moving up to the Napa Valley and working at a glorious vineyard up there, Spring Mountain Vineyard. It's the largest contiguous vineyard property in the Napa Valley, and I was their director of sales and hospitality. And then I had an opportunity to um, expand my career and do something a little different, working more on the education and marketing side, which is where I am today. And so I took a position as champagne specialist covering the Moet Hennessy champagne portfolio. And I did that for just over four years. And I've been in my current role as the National Ruinart Ambassador for about a year, all in a nutshell. Yeah, no, there you I, go. Childhood yeah. till where I <laughs> sit today. <laughs> so, tell me what your job is at Ruinart then. Yeah, that's that's a really loaded question, Charlie. <laughs> um, because certainly, and I would say this is probably true for um, most people who take jobs. And I wouldn't want to be the person writing a job description because there's so much that expands outside of what is actually in that description. But ultimately. What my main goal for my job, um, as a national ambassador, I cover multiple states through one distributor throughout the country from Pennsylvania to um, Hawaii. However, I'm also – I work with the brand team in New York and I go to France to Champagne, our Maison, from time to time. Um, But my main goal is to work with distributors to help them with trainings, with education, with doing presentations – um, for either accounts, for new accounts or accounts that already exist in our universe, um, in addition to training the sales team so that they have, they're empowered to speak about our brand and have a better understanding of champagne. So mostly the education is the biggest part of my role. But in addition to that, I also help build relationships and alliances with our sommelier community. That's very important for Ruinart for our brand is to have the connection with the sommelier community and wine professionals. So we are involved every year. Our chef de cas, Frederick Peniotis, with the Guild of Sommelier, Guild Somme, we have the Ruinart Challenge, and it's typically in about five major cities in the U.S., although it is it is put on globally, but here in our country, we have five, and I'm very involved with that with our, with our the, on the organizational side um, here in the U.S., but that is a one-day event. It's a blind tasting with um, roughly about 30 sommeliers, 
And from this blind tasting, um, there there's a committee, and then one person is wins a trip to Champagne um, with the Guild Psalm. So that's really fun. It's a great engagement to have um, such. Uh, a great community of sommeliers in different markets throughout the U.S. And then our winemaker, he gives a one-and-a-half-hour presentation, and we just stay connected with them throughout the year. So this is really important for us, for our brand, uh, in addition to art. So just to give you a snapshot of what my week looks like this week, we're preparing for Freeze LA, our partnership with um, – so it's Reunart and uh, – partnering with Freeze LA, which is one of the largest global mobile art fairs. Um, They're in London, New York, and the inaugural year here at Paramount Studios. So we're preparing for that uh, this week. Which was uh, sort of a surprise. So uh, I've been scouring these websites just sort of, you know, to prep for your arrival here. And I don't think they even really said it. I think it was through just talking to you that I learned about Freeze Yes, and this is the inaugural year. So they expect a pretty high turnout. And we have one of our artists that we've commissioned doing an installation, Lou Boleyn. So this will be a really exciting exhibit, a, a great partnership with Rune Art and Art because we have been um, so involved since inception. We were the first to um, commission an artist for a poster in France. Um, the first champagne house. So we've always had this connection with art, so with sommeliers and also with the art culture. So that was sort of a fin de siècle um, uh, poster, like in the whatever, exactly. early 20th century. Yes. But the house goes back like the oldest. We're the very yeah. first, we're the first established house of champagne right, since right. 1729. So just to kind of position where Ruin Art is kind of in the world of champagne, your parent company is LVMH, Louis Vuitton, Moet Hennessy, and they're sort of a vertically integrated um, luxury brand that covers hospitality, travel, perfume, accessories, fashion, and and uh, wine and spirits. And in addition to having a bunch of luxury still wine brands, they have like this incredible champagne portfolio, which is foremost in the world. Uh, for sure, and in this country, a huge presence, particularly through Moet. Um, Ruinart is, by all accounts, and I know personally, is an amazing champagne, and and certainly among the top ten or fifteen champagnes in the world. And how, when LVMH has a portfolio of Moet, Dom Perignon, uh, Veuve. Ruinart and Krug, um, how do they distinguish themselves within that portfolio? Yeah, it actually is a a beautiful, uh, aside from being a beautiful portfolio of champagnes, it's also um, collectively we all empower one another because every house is so distinctively and iconically different with their style of wine, how they produce uh, which great varieties they're using. Obviously, there's the, the three, but they well, all the, the styles are different. In addition to that, also, um, each is really a lifestyle brand because, as we know, champagne, I would say that champagne's probably the only category of wine um, that outside of cognac, but that's more, that's a spirit, that 
is a lifestyle. It encompasses lifestyle because when you think of bubbles, it it, it stimulates emotion, and that emotion also is cause for celebration or status where we are in life. So, aside from being an incredible beverage, incredible incredible wine, it's also um, really encompasses this lifestyle and a, and a feeling. That's what I'm actually particularly interested in, in, in that we're talking about a really ultra high quality. I, I don't really have the words to describe the effect that a good champagne has on me, but as well being something that evokes celebration and ultimately luxury, which is kind of what the whole LVMH portfolio is about. How do you talk about uh, drinking champagne to a client? Yeah, so for our champagne, I, it's not so much ta- talking about drinking it. It's really more what it, the significance it is in, in our life. Because I could sit here and drink any sparkling wine all day long, whether it's from the new world, old world. But what's really significant about and, and the story of our brand is the history and the heritage, it being the first house of Champagne and um, just the, the wars and the battles that have been fought in Champagne and the, the entire region and keeping it thriving over the years through so much turmoil. And just alone in the vineyards, the the, the struggle each year just to get a harvest. They have extreme weather conditions that don't really exist in other wine regions to the degree. It's last year it was snowing in in during dormancy and then um, turn around and in the summer we had one of the hottest harvest in in the century. So um, just to see the the just the struggle in the vineyard and and. And also, it's in Champagne. It's so terroir driven. We're um, in the one of the highest nor- northern parallels in the wine region, so it's very cool. And then you have this glorious terroir. Uh, you know, the French that encompasses everything: your your weather patterns, the soil. Um, you know where you are in latitude. So there's so much that in- is encompassed when you speak on terroir. And the French do it much better than than anyone else. They really embrace that. But we um, just simply the the soil, the chalky soils, that's going to impact and influence the the fruit, the acidity, the the overall phenolics, everything. So for Reunart, just to speak more on earlier, I was speaking on style. Our style, we have a very um, reductive style. It's very clean, Chardonnay driven. We source the very best. Chardonnay in the region, Premier and Grand Cru fruit, and we've always we've been known to be a, a Chardonnay house, which is unique and unique in our portfolio. We're the only Blanc de Blanc. Right. Um, you talk about lifestyle, and I, from the you know website material and what I've able to unearth and what I've uh, experienced uh, myself, you seem to be very event driven. And kind of getting out into the public, although at least on the retail level, uh, it seems as though you're very studious in terms of, you know, where you appear and that you're very aware of um, 
The brand's presentation. Yeah, our presence in the market. Absolutely. Uh, so Reunart, we're a mid-sized brand. We, I, I mean, overall, champagne, it's it's only 1%. It's 10% of the production in France, I believe, and 1% of the world's wine. So it's very, very limited quantities anyhow. And we're a mid-sized house. So um, just to go back a little bit on on, you mentioned earlier that we're one of the holdings under the LVMH portfolio. And what this brings us is an enormous opportunity for great resources. So we have great re- we have uh, resources for the best Chardonnay um, and just all the the latest techniques that are out there. We're sustainable. We were we're really we were the first to appoint a director of sustainability. So if we didn't have being part of the alliance of being in this portfolio, we wouldn't have the resources available to us that we do. Um, that being said, we, we've been able to grow the house and our production to a mid-sized house, which is a really good fit for us. And even though Ruinart is the most consumed champagne in France, it's in you in the U.S. It's it's a leading market for us, but it's not the biggest market. France is the biggest market for us. So our position in the U.S. is we you know, sit in that prestige category. So we are a luxury-driven, mid-sized house, and we, you will not find us in chains or big retailers. It's just more independent and your smaller boutique retailers, in addition to restaurants and um, a lot of the, the accounts that, like, new and upcoming restaurants, in addition to uh, culinary-driven restaurants. That's really are um, because we're such a culinary driven wine, we really typically are you'll find us in those type of restaurants and um, boutique retailers. Okay, so in your job, obviously you want to distinguish yourself from other brands, whether they be LVMH or, or others. Is there a certain kind of well, I'm fascinated by the term lifestyle and how that becomes uh, activated through, you know, marketing efforts. And there's still a kind of disconnect with me. I, I understand the connection with art and the connection with the heritage aspect the uh, and, and a certain kind of legitimacy, through the, certainly through the quality of the wine. I get the feeling that when you um, engage in trying to create these events, that it has to do with the bringing of people together. And how do you think that that kind of event or that communal phenomenon benefits selling your brand? Yeah, so really the, there's two parts here. So the marketing aspect is really what helps bring the brand to life. And that's separate from experiencing it, tasting it, and in enjoying it. So they together, it's two pieces coming together that help bring the brand to life. So um, touching on your point for lifestyle, our, our marketing side really helps uh, illuminate out there is a better understanding of how it fits in someone's life and uh, getting the word out there. And then where our side, when you're actually experiencing it, or even, for instance, when I'm at an event talking about the brand or educating people that's just an extension of assisting with the lifestyle part of the brand. So they are, it is two different 
elements. You have the lifestyle and then you have the actual enjoyment of tasting the wine. And which it needs to be together because if not understanding where something's sourced or where it's from or its heritage, it doesn't have any significance. If I'm buying a luxury watch or a a car, I want to know where it's from, what it's made of, why it costs what it does. So um, the same with champagne. It's not just any wine. It's, it's, it's time and patience in a bottle. It takes a minimum for us five years to even make a non-vintage wine because if you consider the harvest, the, the reserve wines that you're blending in the wine and then the time it spends on the lee prior to disgorgement, additional cellar age before you're even releasing it, that's almost five years. So there's going to be a cost value to that because of time, patience, quality. And these elements need to be explained because not everyone is born knowing how champagne is made. So um, that, that's we work collaboratively with marketing and education to get these messages so that people understand what it is that they're experiencing. I totally get that. But the value of people interacting, uh, potential customers or event uh, goers, literally seeing each other with a glass of ruin art in their hand, mutually drinking the stuff. And the effect that that can have on, you know, just as a social synergy, where you see a person who maybe is attractive to you or is somebody who you assign a credibility and they're drinking ruin art and you're drinking ruin art and they're they're experiencing the same, hopefully uh, by encountering you. It seems to me that that's very potent. It is potent. We call them influencers, Charlie. (laughs) But yes, even when you watch an award ceremony or sporting event and you see a celebrity or an athlete or even a musician out there uh, that is enjoying partaking in your champagne or, you know, any product, then it does stimulate something in your mind that's that resembles lifestyle, a point of arriving, um, status, and a, a place in your life that is, it's all, at the end of the day, it's about pleasure and enjoyment. And that's what we bring with champagne is pleasure and enjoyment. So it would be accurate to say that uh, Ruin Art is capable of, of transporting someone into a fantasy for a bit uh, with your help. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> Every bottle of Ruin Art, one bottle at a time. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so you're a medium of sorts. Yes. Yeah. I'll say I'm a medium. <laughs> okay, so how is L.A. Uh, positioned as being a champagne market? Well, fortunately, we have quite a large population here. I think that we know that just by driving on the city streets. And Too bad you that, can't sell champagne on the you know, traffic jams. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. uh, on the side of the freeway, right? Uh, yeah, but alone, we, we have simply just the population and the climate and a large amount of disposable income, international and domestic, this is certainly Los Angeles is um, among the top global international cities 
obviously in the world with an, a lot. It's just a very good economy here. So there's a lot of growth and the champagne category is growing very, it's in a very healthy place and it's been growing strong for, I've noticed in the five, six years that I've been covering champagnes, be, working in the champagne industry, that it, it's been a growing category along with the cocktail culture, but champagne has been on a rise for several years. And is that because you're able to um, decouple it from just being uh, a beverage of celebration or Absolutely. of luxury? Yeah. Not just celebration, an everyday drink. You see more by the glass, not just white wine, red wine offerings, and possibly a few sparklings. You have um, now I'm seeing in different, they categorize it. Blanc de Blanc, uh, Blend, Rosé. So they're separating on many of the lists because it's in demand. And we also have a more sophisticated wine community, wine culture in Los Angeles, as many major cities, San Francisco, New York, Chicago, Miami. Americans in general, I guess, are a more sophisticated culture because there's more of an interest. So as there's more of an interest, people are seeking where to find these these type of, of beverages. And um, so in Los Angeles in particular, it's there's an influx of um, a lot of money that's been coming into the city, many from other countries that are buying up a lot of real estate. And so that also with growth, you're going to have more restaurants and hotels. You see what's happening in downtown LA already. So and with our warm weather, it's just such a perfect pairing with the cuisines that are offered here. Lots of sushi, spicy food, um, California cuisine. So champagne, honestly, champagne goes with everything. It, it pairs with everything, but especially in a warmer climate, it's really ideal. So we see an enormous growth and um, this is one of our strongest markets for sure. Um, so how is Ruinart doing? I mean, is it easy to sell at this point? I mean, I think there's, it's a compelling story. It is. Absolutely. We have a compelling story. And uh, it's more of where – I don't want to say where we want to be, but it's it's um, making sure that we maintain and hold the very best relationships with our retail partners and our – on-premise, you know, restaurants and hotel groups. So those that are already supporting the brand, we want to make sure we're maintaining those relationships. And there's some room for growth, too. It's – we don't get a a lot of pressure like, oh, you have to, you know, sell out of the vintage or you have to sell – it's it's less of a pressure. It's more of what, what is the focus and where are the trends and are we meeting those trends, and making sure that we have the right resources and tools in place to make sure that we have the team set up in in different uh, – I'm, I'm traveling all over the country and I meet all of our teams, uh, meeting the distribution teams, our specialist teams, marketing teams, and we, we, have, we have several different teams out there. It's a, it takes a lot of effort just to um, reach all the market demands. However, I'm out there meeting – them and it's just building the connections and and helping facilitate what they need to keep us um, relevant and vibrant in market. 
you mentioned trends. Can you comment on that? Rosé has been on a rise, and we've seen – I, you and I have shopped at many of the same local wine retailers, and I know that you've probably seen a trend in the past 10 or 15 years, especially the past six years. But for champagne, it came a little later. Uh, people were drinking rosé from Provence and, and California rosé, and it's been on the rise, and it's here to stay. I see rosé category – on almost every wine list now. But rosé champagne, that came a little later because most consumers associated champagne with being one wine, uh, typically a non-vintage blend of Pinot Noir, Meunier, and Chardonnay. Now, because we have people that are interested in not just um, producers, but also grower champagne. So this gives um, those of us who have access to to a wide selection of different champagnes will suss out like what we like in the different categories. And so we're seeing a growth in rosé overall. So champagne um, was also quick to come into the scene. We've always had, we we were the first house to make a rosé. Um, not in the blending method that we use today. Uh, we've perfected, of course. But champagne has always had rosé. It just was never really a trend. And now that we've seen such a strong trend, and especially here in the U.S., it's a category that we are driving. And we, um, it's very important to us, and it's something that, that we are trying to increase every year. Increased production and, and overall sales as well because it is in demand. Is there a way of your determining whether your increase in sales, which I assume that you – I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that Ruinart is increasing, is going up year, year on year? Yes, incrementally. Right. Yeah. In, right. Is that uh, as a result – do you know uh, – of increasing champagne sales in total, or are you do you have uh, champagne drinkers migrating to? Yeah, the well, I can't speak for all brands or the, but I have read in different publications, uh, wine industry publications, and the category has grown rather significantly in the past five years, and every year they write new reports and you see those numbers increase by digits. So the, that growth is different for each brand. Even within the Moet Hennessy portfolio, it will be different among each individual brand. There's variations of how that growth actually is executed. Got it. Champagne styles. We've talked about rosé Anything else? Uh, I think you mentioned at one point uh, when we were talking earlier, dryer and monovarietal. Yeah, monovarietal. So I I touched on that. Uh, As I mentioned prior, most consumers, most of the general consumer would associate champagne with being a blend of two or three grape varieties. And the three that uh, are are really practiced and grown most would be Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Meunier in champagne. And so most non-vintage is a blend of the three. And for Reunart, we only use Chardonnay. 
So that is very rare, Blanc de Blanc. It's a growing category. There's not too many of them out there, especially for houses, for producers. Uh, for for growers, there are a few more. And then we also have rosé. So our flagship is the Renard Blanc de Blanc, or 100% Chardonnay. And then with our rosé, we blend in Pinot Noir. And we also have vintage. And that's a category that we've seen grow significantly also over the past, I would say, decade. You, you didn't see um, before the 90s, there weren't a lot of people. There were collectors that would collect vintage. But it really wasn't until after the 90s that well, it was in the 90s where these trends of buying vintage champagne was really coming around. And you see, we see a significant increase in the demand and the interest for vintage. So we've even, we make more vintage now than, um, it was less of a focus in the past than it is today. So we have four marks, four expressions here in the U.S. We have the Blanc de Blanc Rosé, and then our Blanc de Blanc, the Dom Ruinart Blanc de Blanc 2007 Vintage is our current release, and then the Dom Ruinart Rosé 2004. So we only work with Premier and Grand Cru, so the highest quality fruit throughout the region with the two grape varieties. Now some growers and houses use 100% Pinot Noir, Blanc de Noir, and others blend. So these separate different categories have been trending. So we've seen an increase in all the categories. And I've noticed a lot of houses, um, even in, within our own portfolio, expand in a sweeter style, demi-sex, and even demi-sex that can be poured on ice and uh, sweeter style wine. So then we're really covering everything from extra brute all the way through to a sweeter style uh, demi-sec and above. And this has been, a, uh, because of the interest in champagne and trying the different styles, we have also tried to reach the market demand. I won't say we, but as a portfolio, I've noticed that there has been an increase in market demand that we try to meet. So it would follow that uh, with these categories that you mentioned, vintage and Blanc de Blanc or Blanc de Noir, that consumers are willing to move up from the regular NV and spend more money, basically. So not only is it, it, does it sound like a growth industry in terms of bottles sold, but also in, in price per bottle as well. It yeah, Well, yes and no. So when um, because we're we are any house vineyards that they don't own themselves they have to purchase the fruit from growers so the growers increase the price of the fruit every year so therefore the price of the wine has to increase it doesn't mean that it's increased um, be higher for profit it's increased higher because the price of the fruit cost more well what I was saying is if you buy a, a vintage champagne, Rather than a non-vintage champagne, it's right. it's necessarily going to cost more because it's uh, more exclusive and and a r more rarefied yeah, prod more rare. product. Yes, yeah. and it's restricted to that particular vintage. Whereas yeah. the f the flexibility with non-vintage is that you can 
go back with reserved wine or go back outside of your region or mm -hmm. blend. I guess you can blend however, yeah, you can blend however you like um, to try to get those effects. The other point is what you mentioned of wines being able to, uh, champagne wines being able to uh, stand up to ice or to making into a, you know, a cocktail with additions. That is a fact and a product from Moet and from Veuve that I've uh, observed. I guess the question is, would that be um, more appropriately segmented into a special type of champagne as opposed to, you know, I mean, you have the issue of um, possibly compromising the image of champagne in, you know, doing a really high dosage um, yeah, for both both for uh, Moet and Chandon and Vaucliquot, it's it's about uh, expanding their portfolio of wines and making expressions available to reach consumer demand. And really, where a lot of this came to play as well is I mentioned earlier the cocktail cultures on a rise, and often champagne is used as part of the cocktails. To have an, a sweeter style expression really leans towards a better cocktail. So uh, there, there were numerous reasons because uh, in Saint-Tropez, it's so hot. And um, our winemaker from Moet and Chandon, he saw that people were putting ice in their champagne, and which is faux pas. <laughs> That's the last thing you should be doing. And so it occurred to him, I should reach the consumers demand. If they want to put ice in their champagne, I am going to have an expression offering that it brings up the freshness by adding ice. So uh, Moet has a non-vintage Moet ice um, that is a, a higher, much higher dosage that is um, more concentrated. So then when you have it on ice, it's very light and refreshing. It's delicious. It's great to have poolside um, or to add to a cocktail. And then they also have a rosé, which is quite refreshing. So it's that sweeter style that many consumers really like. And so I think it's great that they're – because champagne, in champagne, when you, especially when you're there, it's – they're really um, – are not the first to catch on to these trends. So I think that's very innovative for them to reach outside of kind of the parameters of, of how people envision champagne should be made to – expand their portfolio and have an offering that people are enjoying. And then with Bovclico, they have rich. It's an expression. It's even sweeter, um, the dosage. And that is really accented to be blended with cocktails. Well, I can see why you create this image of the winemaker wa watching this. He's watching. <laughs> but I can see on a pragmatic level why he'd want to you know, get out in front of it by making a style that probably – um, emphasizes other uh, of the flavor qualities in the wine, um, not at the expense of the sugar. But also I see why it would be very canny to join the cocktail culture and become part of it by creating a mixer for it. So, Or an addition. An We're not a mixer. An addition, of course. <laughs> We're the starter. <laughs> right. Well, I noticed in, in the Veuve uh, ads that really the, the only thing that they're adding is like a twist of lemon or, and some ice or so so where do you see yourself in the future when you want to slow down? 
Sl- you- slow down, slow down. What? <laughs> I don't. I don't even see. I have no vision of retirement, Charlie. <laughs> uh, I really, honestly, it's it's incredible. I couldn't really say this um, for all the jobs that I've had in my life, but I could see myself doing this forever. Certainly, being involved in champagne. I love the Maison, the house that I work for. Often it doesn't feel like a job, although this when I have to do the planning and the organizational and and logistical things, certainly that that does feel like work. Uh, when you're expecting two pallets of uh, yes, hooch in your driveway, exactly. Right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> that definitely feels like work. Um, trying to meet deadlines and reach meet people's expectations. Those are the hard parts of the job. But uh, connecting with people and, as I say, preaching the gospel of champagne for a living, uh, it's something I absolutely love. And that does not feel like work because I believe in it and it resonates with me. So if I'm able to uh, express a a part of, of our champagne house or champagne as a region, that is what I love to do. So it doesn't feel like work. And I could see myself doing this for a very, very long time. And at the very least, working in Champagne uh, within education and marketing uh, for the rest of my life. Just um, possibly not having the uh, the job description being as somebody who can lift 40 pounds all the time. Exactly. Right. I don't want to be lifting. Right. I have no interest in making wine. <laughs> Making champagne. Uh, make, I have no interest in making champagne. It is the hardest thing to make. It's 10 times harder than just making a still wine. Uh, so I, I think I have a really good part in it. I'm I'm here to help them and spread their word and, and their beautiful wine to people all over the country. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Charlie. Yeah.